Everyone, welcome to another episode of the Stone Genius Podcast. You know me, my name is Ro. I'm the Stone Genius. I'm often stoned. I'm always a genius. Uh, caveat, unless you speak to my wife. So uh, she will, she wonders often how I get into these societies. And uh, maybe I have someone take the test for me. I don't know. Actually, I do know, and that's not what happens. So welcome to the program. Uh, we have a guest on the program tonight that I'm very excited to talk to. We're, we get to talk about a, a many different things, but uh, one, as a former bartender myself, uh, this uh, gentleman has had a career, a 35-year career in restaurants, uh, mostly as a bartender, so we're going to talk a little bit about that career. And then they've also written a book uh, called A Shot of Okies. It is um, set in 1743. And the description of it would best be bourbon pirates with a Shakespeare flair. So, uh, without further ado, welcome to the program, Alex Bennett. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited. So, so I guess my first question, as a former bartender myself, or being, I was a, I was a bartender at a restaurant, not at bars. It was like a, a bar and grill, Bennigan's back in the '80s and okay. '90s. Um, so I probably didn't have these. I obviously didn't have the storied career you did. But let me ask you first: How did you make it thirty-five years? <laughs> well, that's a good question. You know, I, I guess I'd have to answer it with some thick skin. You know, because uh, in the end, you know, and and before I even say that, I I say anytime you stand behind a bar, and I don't care if it's a Bennigan's or or a restaurant or a bar, or if it's just a slab on two barrels. You're bartending, man. If you got a crowd at the bar and you're entertaining people and you're making drinks, and, and, and more importantly, if you're interacting and conversing in, with them, then you're bartending. So I wouldn't I wouldn't disparage what you've done in the past, what I've done, or, and still do currently. Um, but to answer your question, you know, I, I fell into the restaurant world. My parents bought a place when I was 16 years old, and I literally started washing dishes. So what kind? What kind of place it was it? A, a sit-down place? A fa what? What? I guess it was a sit-down. So if you were doing dishes, so what type of food? Oh yeah, so it was a pizza place, pizza grill. It was it was like a neighborhood little pizza place in Joliet, Illinois. It's still there. It's called Maury's Table. It's been there since 1971, I believe, and they bought it in '87. And uh, and so I literally say I grew up there, you know. And by the time I was I was 19, I was kind of running the kitchen, start serving. I turned 21, started bartending. By 25, I say I was that place. And the, the long story short on it is that my parents ended up selling it to my in-laws. Uh, they ended up becoming my former in-laws. <laughs> and that's kind of how I ended up out of that business. Um, wow. And, and on a, yeah, on a side note, I, you know, I get along great with my ex. In a lot of ways, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because restaurants tend to consume your life, especially when you're running one. And I say that that place consumed my 20s. And being forced to get out of it um, and kind of go out there and, and, and kind of take on life, you know, it opened up my eyes. It opened up a lot of doors to me. It, it got me out of my comfort zone and I had to grow as a person. And so um, from there, I actually went to school. I got my certification to teach English. I got my master's in education. And in, in the course of doing that, I ended up at another restaurant, you know, because I, I needed to eat while I was in school. And then I just served and bartended, you know, I, and I knew what I was doing. And I also knew, you know, it wasn't going to take me 
It wasn't gonna take all my time. I didn't take all my focus. And the wonderful thing about being a server and a bartender is when you leave work, you walk out that door, man, you leave it behind. Your phone doesn't ring. Right. And so, uh, you know, the, the process of that, I graduated in 2010. At the time, the housing market had collapsed. I was one of 1,200 people applying for these different jobs. And my boss, who's currently still a really good friend of mine, and I actually work for him, he, he bought his own place, and I currently work there. But uh, he said to me, hey, if you want full-time hours, man, I'll give you full-time hours. And so I, I decided, you know, this must be my fate. I got to settle in and make the best of it. And, and honestly, I'm glad it did because the – I have gained so much from bartending and interacting with my regulars and, and really my friends that they have become that, you know, I wouldn't have gained in another profession. Did you have an exact moment where you just kind of, so here's how I relate it. My parents, uh, after my dad had a stroke, they had a minivan. Our kids had been younger and they wanted a minivan so we could all drive everywhere. And my wife and I refused to buy a minivan. And so after my dad had a stroke, he kept wanting to get rid of the minivan, kept running, and he wanted to, to sell it to us. I'm like, I'm not buying it. So he finally was like, I will give you the minivan. And so I, I begrudgingly drove it. But then one day I just had this epiphany that a car is a car. It doesn't matter. And, yeah, you know, I, yeah. I had that. And, I, and it was funny because as soon as I had that realization, I think within seven days, someone ran a light T-bone me, and I get it up. I got a brand new uh -huh. SUV out of it. So, but I, I just wonder whether there is ever that epiphany, like you said, that you're like, well, I kind of got drawn back into this. But did you ever just say, because I think it does take a, a, a kind of a change of a mindset from doing a job to saying this is now, this is where I'm supposed to be. It, so, did you ever have that that epiphany? Yes, absolutely. And you're absolutely right on that. You know, and, and I, I kind of go back to my story because when I went to school, like at the time, I didn't know what I was going to do. And and honestly, I didn't think I could be a professional server or bartender and actually support myself and support my kids that way. And when the school thing worked out the way it did, you know, like I said, my boss had said, hey, if you want to work full time, and so I'm working full time, and I'm seeing what I'm making, and yeah, that was a corporate restaurant, and the nice thing about it was that I could get health insurance through it, so yeah. it's sort of like, oh, I can get health insurance through this, and I can support myself, and, and through my custody, I got my boys half the week, I got them every Saturday night, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, so I would literally work all day, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I'd work Saturday night, but then I'd be off Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, so I could still be a part of their life, right. participate in it, you know, and that sort of thing. And so I, when I looked at the overall picture, I realized that this, this is actually a really, really good gig for me. And, and at that point, I started developing. I've been there enough years. I started developing my own regulars. You, I always tell young bartenders, the goal of this is, is it's like your own business. You know, your right. shifts are your shifts. And as many people as you can get to come in and see you is as busy as you're going to be. And so that started happening to me. And I'm looking at my days going, well, I'm making a hundred bucks on my Wednesday lunch. So I should just keep working this, this out and, you know, let it play out the way it has and kind of put everything behind me and, and raise my kids and, and get to the next point in my life. And so, yeah, I'd say the day came when, you know, I'm looking around at what I'm going to do. And I got this, this thing staring at me in the face where it really works out with the things that are important to me. 
And I got to accept, I got to accept it for what it is and take it for what it is. And, and that was, that was really probably about 2011, 2012, so a good 10 years ago. And I've been doing it ever since. And, and it sounds like the way you're speaking that it really, because you get that, you know, so, so like me, I used to, to have a corporate gig and I had a lot of responsibility. But like you said, there's there's a benefit of being able to walk away from a job and not have them call you after you leave. And so that's so I do sales right now. And I literally and I tell them, I go, you hired me to do sales. Let's not worry about anything except sales. You give me the number that you will be ecstatic with me hitting. I will hit that number for you. And, you know, I because that's all I want to do. I want to come in and sell and leave. I don't, I don't want to be bothered and do some things. And once you come to that real, cause it gives me the opportunity to do this, like, because I'm yeah, not yeah. focused on the money. So if, and there are times, cause I'll record this after I I've worked all day where I will turn a customer over just because I need to leave because I would rather do this than help the customer. But it's by having that job, it allows me to do this because my other my other jobs would not have allowed. I would have been responsible for the whatever the outcome was and whatever I was engaged with. So there's a lot of benefit to that. And it's like that that fits in so well with your family as well. Well, you know, actually, it's it's interesting that you're saying this because the advice I give to a lot of young people is, that you know, as we get older, we tend to be become our profession so to speak yes. where you know if you're a doctor you're a doctor and that's what you are and that's what everybody identifies you as and this and that and so you know you look at a person who who works in restaurants as a server or as a bartender or whatever and you know they nobody i don't want to say people look down on it but people don't look at it as necessarily a career or something you can do that your entire life but the beautiful thing about it is, yeah, it opens up the door for you to do whatever you want outside of work creative, creatively. And I think that's why in the restaurant industry, you got a lot of artists, you got a lot of musicians, you got a lot of writers. I mean, I would never have been able to sit down and write my book and dedicated the time that I needed to dedicate to that if I was, if I had a job when my phone was ringing because I needed me to follow up with this or, you know, I'm, I'm getting messages or emails right. that I kind of, constantly have to have to address and so and i think that's something that everybody has to but especially the young people have to look at you know what do you want to get out of your life because if you have a job that pays your bills and allows you to pursue your dream so to speak or the things that you love to do well that's a great job and it doesn't matter if there's a stigma attached to it where oh that can't be your career well it might not be your career but you get to pursue your life Right. And that can be a whole lot more important than than you know having a professional, you know, three letters yes. at, at the end of your name. Does yeah. that make sense? It does. There's a guy that I used to work with. I used to be the Nikon rep at Best Buy, and they're actually, even though they're Best Buy employees, they're paid for by Nikon, Canon, Sony. At least in this, this department, at least that's the way it used to be. So I didn't have to help anyone else outside. I was all I did was cameras. But when they switched our store over to commission salespeople, not me, the others, I was talking to one of them one day, and he had made a sale. And he had said, oh, that's an extra you know, $15 in my pocket or $20 in my pocket or whatever. And when, and see, I don't think of money like that. I think of, 
oh, that means I could leave an hour earlier and still make the same amount of money I would have in a full day because mm -hmm. my life is outside of work. So I, yeah. I, I've often said this, I'm in commission sales now. And if they gave me, and I've said this, I don't give a shit. You can, you can throw out there a number that you think is so astronomically high. It still needs to be attainable. Like something that's never even been done by the store as a whole. It can't be something, but I'm like, if you threw that number out there and said, uh, once you hit $2,500 in a day or whatever the case may be, then you can leave. I guarantee I'd be gone by lunch every day because that <laughs> yeah. means it, but you know, if I know that I'm just, you know, I'm here and I'm making money and uh, you know, it's, it is what it is. I'll take the customers. But if they saw, they would see me and I'm <sighs> I'm a horror. I, I don't know how I'm able to keep the jobs I am. I think it's because of, I, actually I take that back. It is because of my personality. So when I was a, a bartender and a server at Bennigan's, I remember one day they were doing the, I forget whatever, the, it, it's not chores. I forgot what they called it at the end, like doing silverware and things like side that. Side work. Yes, yeah, side work. So uh, I was up there and I think I was eating. I think I was the, the daytime bartender. I was working until the evening. And so I think I was back there eating and uh, our training waitress was there with a trainee and she was talking to them and I just said hey if you want to be an amazing waitress then you need or waiter you need to listen to everything she has to say and it was funny because she goes yes but if you want to make money you need to have a personality like he does I was a shitty I was horrible but my oh, personality man. would make, because I would joke, someone would come in and go, I want a Cosmo. I'd be like, you can fucking have a beer or a shot. Which one of those two would you like? And, then, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I would, I would eventually turn it around where those were the options. I don't want to make you. And, and so that's why it, it was the personality because you can, like you said, you own your time. So I, if I was gone one day, you know, I had to be off uh, from a normal shift, I would have regulars that would come in, see me not there, and turn around and leave. Yeah, I, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And, that's, and that's really the way you, it is. And what you said I, is exactly what I tell anybody that asks me, you know, what's the secret to being successful as a bartender? It's not making the drinks. The drinks are repetition, man. Right. You're going to learn. You learn how to make a Cosmo if you make 100 Cosmos. Right. Man. The 101 will be down. It's about interacting with the guests. It's about every single person that sits down at your bar. You strike up a conversation with them. You get to know them. You know, maybe one in 10 come back. But if you got got 1,000 people that come through your bar in the course of a month, well, you know, you got 100 people that you're going to be seeing every week or, you know, every other week or whatever it is. And you're going to stay busy and you're going to stay good and you're going to stay fed and you're going to stay warm and, and dry. And that's what's important. Right. And then you build on it from there. And, and so it's conversing, it's interacting. It's, it's a social job. It's not, it's not um, like a production job, you know, and, and that's really, you get to know, it's like I said, my regulars have become my friends. They call me up. I go to, I get invited to weddings and stuff like that. And, and, and as we get older, it gets harder to get together with people. And so I tell them, oh, well, come in and see me for lunch. Right. You know, you got to eat lunch and we can hang out for a little while. And, you know, and, and yes, I live off of their generosity. I'm always appreciative for that. But, you know, they come in for a reason. I give them good service. They hang out. They have a good time. And, and in a lot of cases, they get to know each other, which is even better because they're all hanging out with each other. And it's like hanging out with the boys for me. If that makes any sense.
it, 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 and it's, you know, I, sometimes I don't think about situations until I'm kind of forced into, I mean, and you're not forcing me into thinking about it, but I, I, as you're talking about the, you know, I, I've always thought that in my career was, I think it was a year and a half. I probably bartended. It wasn't, it wasn't super long. I was, I was hired in as a waiter because I, I needed a job during the day because my regular job was just in the evenings. And uh, they almost immediately, because of my personality, put me behind the bar, which I was fine with because I would much rather yeah. do that. Um, yeah. But it just my – when I used to travel, I was a, a trainer with Sprint, and I used to travel all over the United States. And as you mentioned that, especially – and I noticed this in Minneapolis because it was so fucking cold in Minneapolis when I was there that a lot of – there were, where I would always stay, there was uh, a couple of restaurants – like right next door. So I didn't have to go out, warm up the car. I didn't, I could just walk mm -hmm. next door. So I was going, and now that you mentioned that, it, you know, I would see people at the bar and a lot of times I would be, I'd be like, you know, that's kind of sad. That guy's sitting at the bar, sitting there talking to the bartender. But you know, now that I think about it, is the comrade there, the, you know, if they weren't there talking to you or whoever the bartender was, maybe they're at home by themselves. Oh, Absolutely. You so, know, and I never thought, you know, I never thought, you know, so it doesn't, you know, even just talking to you in this brief bit, you know, I, it totally changed. Cause I would see those people and I, and I'm this, you know, they're probably looking at me and thinking, Oh, the poor sap he's eating by himself. Cause he travels all the time. At least they, I was the one by myself. They're at the bar talking to someone. And I was like, Oh, the poor person. So it, it's funny well, because I've never thought about that until you talked about the, the, the sense of community uh, that you created at the bar. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny, like, one of the things that we try to find in our work is purpose, you know, right. and you can look at bartending as what's the real purpose? Well, I wait on you, you know, I get your drinks, I, I clear your plate, stuff like that. But there's times when my purpose, so to speak, becomes very apparent when I realize that people needed the hour and a half or two hours that they sat with me. And one of the best examples I, I tell is that, you know, I had this lady, I used to work Wednesdays with another bartender. I closed, she was the first one in. And we had this regular, her name was uh, Jenny. And she would come in usually around 5, 5.30 and stick around till seven or so. And she had a, a, a dirty martini with blue cheese olives. And then she had a glass and a half of Sauvignon Blanc. And she'd usually order some food in there, but we just sit and talk. We talk about a million things, books, kids. Uh, her daughter was into making documentaries in Alaska. Um, my kids, you know, just everything. We talked about everything under the sun. And that went on for about nine months until she comes in one day and she got a gift for me and the other bartender. And she gives it to us and we're like, what's this for? And she goes, well, it's probably going to be the last time we see you. And, you know kind of a shocking moment to hear that because we got along so great. We look forward to seeing her. She looked forward to seeing us. And so we we're like, you know, why, what's up? And, and she goes, well, I haven't told you any of this, but my brother has been in hospice for the last six months and I've been staying with him to take care of him. And I can't tell you how much I needed the hour and a half every Wednesday that I spent with you guys. And we're like, well, you know, you never said anything. Why didn't you say anything to us? Cause she goes, cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to think about it. I, I just needed to come in here and talk about everything else that we talked about and get my mind off of it. Cause for the rest of the week, 
I was going to be dwelling on what I was dealing with, with my brother. Right. You know, so it was kind of one of those moments where it's like, okay, you know, there is a bigger thing to this. And I, and I have plenty of stories like that. Um, but you know, when you hear that from somebody and you realize just how much they do look forward to you and how much you do affect their day positively, you know, kind of it's when you look at yourself in the mirror and go, okay, man, there is a bigger purpose to this. I am needed in a way that, that I never realized before. And, you know, I keep coming in and just doing my thing and, and hopefully it's like that with a lot of other people too. Yeah. Yeah. That, let me ask you this. So I had mentioned this and I don't remember why I was talking about on a recent episode, I had talked about my bartending. Oh, I think it may have been the anniversary. It's about 30 years since I shaved my head. Um, and well, I, I shaved it because at this time I was living in Florida. I had like shoulder length hair and it was like having a wet mop on my head. I play basketball every night outside and it was just, so I shaved it. And then a few years later when I met my wife, she was like, Oh, you should grow the hair back, your hair back for the wedding. And then, uh, mother nature was like, ha 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 ha. I'm not going to let you do that. So, uh, so I've been basically bald since, but so back in 93, when I shaved my head, I, I always joke it was me, Charles Barkley, and Michael Jordan. The people just weren't shaving their head back then. And yeah, um, yeah. so I remember when I was bartending, once my head was shaved, I had a, a, a few group, a few girls come in, and they were there meeting to go out for a bachelorette party. And so they had said, oh, you know, you're, you're – you shave your head? Why? And I was like, I, 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 I th- I'm very cocky. So I'm sure I said some shit like, because I look good this way. And then yeah, they were like, yeah, can we yeah. touch it? And so as a joke, I said, sure, for a buck, I'll let you touch my head. So each one of them grabbed a dollar. And then every girl that yeah. came after that, they're telling, oh, he'll let you rub his head for a dollar. And then <laughs> they would tell other people. And at the end of the night, they invited me out to the bachelorette party, oh, which I, which I went out and I... Well, and I went out and attended, but I was like, that's probably the wildest. I don't ever remember going out with a group or something, but it was just so, but that's what bartending, it's not like a normal job. I mean, like right now I sell orthopedic shoes and I do a tremendous value to people that are in tremendous pain with their feet. Yeah. That being said, I hate feet. I can't (laughs) even tell you how much I dislike feet. I, I, there's. There's not too many other body parts that I would put under, like below feet. I just, I, and I see the worst of the worst feet. And never once sure have I, you know, no one's come in and then like had such a great time that they've invited me out where I've wanted to say, yes, I want to go. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it's just, it's such an interesting. And the reason that I let in with this question, how you've done this for 35 years, because I don't think if you've worked in a restaurant environment or a bar environment, you can even conceive of what a job it is. The, the pressures that you wouldn't see, the daily challenges that you have, the freedom, like you had mentioned, there's positives as well. So I don't think a lot of people that haven't done that would have any clue as to the 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 challenge because there's a lot of challenges in that life as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. So what's um, let, let me ask you this, following up on my story, what's the craziest thing that has ever happened either I mean just what's the craziest interaction whether it was at the bar outside have you do you have a story that just pops immediately to your head? Oh uh, well, one of the craziest nights I ever bartended. So I used to bartend for a caterer, and that was an awesome job. I do when I do uh, weddings, 
the problem with it was it was only Saturday night, you know, and this right. is going back to the to the not, yeah the early two thousands when I first got divorced. But I love that job, and yeah, I mean there were plenty of times when I got invited out to after parties, and you know one thing would lead to another or whatever. But the right. craziest night um, was so. I, I, like I said, I live in Joliet, Illinois, and, and that's a very southern uh, suburb of Chicago. In fact, a lot of people don't even consider it a suburb of Chicago. It's, a, it's right where 80 and 55 meet. Yeah. But you go a little further south, it starts to get, you know, more, much more country. And we had a wedding where half the, where the bridal side was from one very small country town and the the groom side was from another very small country town, but they all knew each other, you know, and they, they were all concrete laborers too. I got to put that in there because <laughs> these guys were built. I mean, they were solid. Right. And so, but wedding starts and, you know, it's very, like I said, it's very kind of rural. I guess you could call it like a bunch of hillbillies if you want, you know, I don't know. But in the end, the wedding starts and there's one guy there who's not part of the group. You can tell he's very artistic, so to speak. He could have been a band or he could have been an artist or something like that. And, um, you know, he kind of stood out and they're all going out to their cars. They're all doing shots out there. They're drinking their whatever. And they're coming up to the bar and they're drinking a lot at the bar. And, and one of the concrete guys, again, who was solid, I hear him say to one of his buddies, I'm going to kick that dude's ass tonight, you know? Uh And hey, man, you know, that's not for me. It's a wedding. It's your family. It's your guys. It's not for me to get involved in that sort of thing. But the wedding goes on and and all of a sudden, and everybody's dancing and this and that. And all of a sudden, you see this rush of people go to the front door, which is usually a sign that something big happened outside. Right. So I go wandering up there. And I see the guy who's artistic. He's kind of being helped along by two other guys. And his shirt's ripped, and he's got a cherry on his forehead. And, you know, it's obvious he's been fighting. And then I see the other guy being kind of held, walked away by a couple of other people. And it's obvious he's been fighting. And I, I open up the door, and I go outside. And in the parking lot, there are 40 or 50 hillbillies just beating the piss out of each other. And I walk out there. I'm like, holy cow. Like, you know, they're all throwing blows. They're like picking each other up, dropping each other. It was absolute pandemonium. So, you know, we always had a cop at the at the weddings, and I kind of wander around looking for the cop, and I find the cop with the groom trying to break up two fight, two guys who are fighting in the center of it all. And, and the funny thing is, you know, I'm dressed to, to be in, working a wedding, so I got a, a tuck shirt on and a bow tie, and, you know, and it's obvious I'm not a part of the wedding. And as I'm wandering through this m- melee, I'd have a guy stop, look at me, recognize me for who I was, and then turn around and look for somebody else to beat up. Like, I mean, it was truly one of the craziest experiences I've ever had. So I find the cop, though, and, and he's, like I said, he's by the groom, and he's breaking up a fight. I go, hey, man, you want me to call Juliet? And go, the groom jumps in and goes, no, no, you got to understand. We're all friends and family. It's okay. It's okay. And I'm like, no, dude, it's not okay. Oh, my you know? gosh. So, yeah. Um so I end up calling Joliet, and they send a few squads. Everybody scatters into the, the surrounding neighborhood. I walk back inside, and all the old people and all the kids are dancing on the dance floor now, like as it, it was a, oh, 
everybody, all the boys are outside, you know, just hanging fun. out, having like a smoke. The most, yep. Yeah, the most normal thing in the world. Um, and then the cops get there, and it, by that point, the flight had ended, you know, and whatever else. And so they look around and they end up leaving. And then you just see these groups of guys coming out in twos and threes. They're in tuxes and they're in suits and they're all ripped up and they're all got, you know, they're all beat up and everything else. They're drinking a beer. You could not tell who was on which side or anything else by the way they're interacting with each other. It was just like, that was just a normal everyday part of the night. And that of all things that I'll ever, I'll always remember in restaurants, it was just walking outside to see this, this, I mean, this battle royale is the only way I could describe it of just guys just in the parking lot, just beating the hell out of each other. And then at the end, man, just hanging out with each other like like it was nothing, man. They're just laughing and you know, everything else. And I, you know, it was it was easily one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Did you work in see, I was trying to think and I I was never it was Bennigan's for God's sakes. So there was never yeah. any fights or anything in there, but I remember being at some bars, especially, and it's funny because you mentioned country. When we lived outside of Kansas City on the Kansas side, outside of DeSoto, Kansas, they had a little bar there. And it was so much, it was a lot of fun to go to. Karaoke every Friday night, we would go. I They they know that I if no one was singing, I would sing. They would just pick me a song and, and pull me up there on stage. And it was so much fun. But on New Year's Eve one day, or one evening, just all hell broke loose. It was right after yeah. the release of some new iPhone. And the problem was they all these drunk people at midnight, they got bottles of champagne. So instead of drink the champagne, they wanted to spray it everywhere. So uh, so okay. so people that had their iPhones out to take pictures were now getting spray. And I remember turning and watching this woman, Superman across a table at another woman's neck. Because she sprayed her oh. iPhone, and I and, and I wasn't bartending, but I just was like, "That is insane!" Did you ever have mm-hmm. anything inside your bar happen where you, whether you had to get involved to break it up or whether they had others to do that? Did you ever have anything that close around you? Well, yeah, I've, there's always been. I've been worked shifts now very rarely. I mean, I could. I, it's been a handful in 30 years because most of the places I ever worked at were like, were not specifically bars like right. that. There were more bars, restaurants. Right. Um, but you know, yeah, man, you see usually what happens in that sort of case is, a, is one or two blows get thrown and then everybody, then, the, you know, the sides break it up. Right. And that's generally what I've seen happen in that sort of thing before it breaks out into something bigger. Um, when it breaks out into something bigger, that's when you have like families involved and, you know, both sides are going to, both sides are going to try to see. And and I'm the type that I always say, if I really need it, I'm going to stick with my line that I'm not getting involved. So the funny thing about that night, we had gone with another couple and where we were sitting, we were kind of, so I backed us into a corner like the girl, the, the girls were behind me uh, or uh, they were behind. I can't even think. Oh, it's Joey. And uh, me and jo- so the girls were kind of behind me and Joey. Well, Joey decided that he was going to be a peacemaker and try to get it broken up. Oh, then man. he got in the middle of it. And so they just took everyone in a group and threw them outside. So it was, and it, was oh, yeah. it was just past midnight. So 
and cold here in Kansas. So we decided, yeah. so we just stared at him through the glass as he was outside and he stood there uh, while the fight continued because he was truly trying to be the peacemaker. But I, I thought about that. One of our neighbors was the bartender. And I, I thought about that after the fact that, you know, I wonder what she does. Cause if I would have been behind the bar, I don't know. Like I say, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get beat up for some shit I didn't do. There's enough shit that I oh, do yeah. that someone could beat oh. my ass for, especially my wife. But I, and I don't, so I don't need to inject myself into anything else. Yeah, and that's that's the advice that I give to anybody. If number one, if there's security at a place, so that's their job, man. They right. ain't gonna come back behind the bar and start making drinks for you. You don't get involved in breaking up fights for them, right? Because what you said, you know. You could be the peacemaker and there's just people throwing punches and you like go to put your hand on somebody to just back them away while they feel you touch them. And then you're getting popped in the face, too. You know, right. it's nobody's thinking in those sort of contexts. That's why it was so weird for me to be able to walk through that crowd and not get hit because like usually it's not, you know, there's not really much uh, critical thinking. activity going on in somebody's yeah. mind. Yeah. And so if you're bartending, you know, you're in a place where you don't have security and a fight breaks out. Um, you know, I'm going to tell you now, just call the cops. Yeah. You know, let the cops, let the cops come duck behind the bar. And if somebody comes back there, you know, you feel you got to defend yourself. Well, that's a, that's a different story. You grab a bottle, you grab anything at hand. Um, but in the end, yeah, man, if there's a fight going on, cause you don't know, it's, you don't know what the story is in the fight. You don't know if somebody's got a weapon. You yeah. know, that, can, that that changes the entire game. And so that's bad is just to protect yourself and stay out of it. You know, bartenders, we make tips. We don't get paid combat pay. You know, exactly. we get paid, paid whatever hourly rate we pay and we survive off the tips. So I'm going to leave that to people that, that are much better, much more suited than I am for that sort of thing. Well, let me ask you then on a transition of this, what is the best thing that a... Uh, that someone that's come into your establishment, guest, customer, however you call them, what is the most surprising or best? Maybe, maybe it's a tip. Like, wow, you gave me a 600% tip or a 2,000% tip, or they because of their kindness or something. Do you have one exact customer? that You had mentioned one earlier that had come in and visited you, and that's kind of something you did for them. But do you remember something that a customer did for you? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Um, and if not, that's know, fine too, because no one would ever do shit for me. So th that's, well, that's, no, that's no. there's, so with my book, you know, that's probably where I go with it the most. Um, yeah. Cause I self published it. I don't have, I'm promoting it all on my own and I'm, Right behind, you know, I'm, and it's I'm, it's called a I'm, shot of Okies, and that hold on, shot of Okies. that'll be a good transition here because I want to ask you that. What in your 35 years, and I don't know when you started writing your book, so so whatever, what during the time frame of you working in restaurants and specifically as a bartender led you to say, you know what, 1743, that's my target year, and I have the story to write. What what in your career, or was there anything? Well, I, yes, there was a lot, and and, and the book and the it's kind of a parallel thing parallel thing. Uh, it took me actually about 10 years from the time that I sat down with a blank sheet of paper to the time that I published it, which, which was just last March. And 
part of that is because it's a trilogy um, and there's kind of a story to that, which I can get into in a bit, but I'll answer your question first because um, what really happened, you know, I was always a reader and I always wanted to write. And so I go to school and that's part of the reason why I get certified to teach English, but it hit me that, hey, you know, if I can teach other people how to write, well, then I can teach myself how to do it. And so the story came about when a friend of mine who, was, who I worked with, and she was, you know, it's a South Side of Chicago. She was very much South Sider. She was, she was very tough and she was Irish. And, Go South Side. Um, yeah, well, you know. Well, so I, yeah. I didn't mention this earlier. So our uh, youngest attended Illinois Institute of Technology on the South Side. Uh, so okay. I actually right. think that I play. I think for her, their nineteenth birthday, we took them and their friends to the top. I think the top golf was in Joliet. Is there a top golf? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is there a well, top? Naperville. Okay. Oh yeah, that's it. That was that was Naperville. Yep. You're right. So that. Yep. So, uh, but yeah. So our we. I love Chicago, by the way. So, and, and yeah. all the areas. So, sorry to jump in, but yeah. So, very familiar with the city and spent a lot of time okay. there. Well, she was very much a part of that culture, you know. And she uh -huh. was a whiskey drinker. And one night we're working, and she broke a glass, and she got some pizza stuck in her eye. And uh, it was a real mess for her. And and you know, she had to wear an eye patch for about two months. And so I used to always kind of tease her that, oh, you're a, you're a true pirate now, and stuff like that, you know. Um, and there's a there's a famous pirate, her name's Anne Bonny, and she was an Irish pirate, and they say that she would, she could fight like a man, talk like a man, and dress like a man, or curse like a man, and dress like a man, and so, you know, I kind of always tease my friend that way, too, you know, I kind of knew some of this stuff or whatever, and then I, I knew the history of whiskey from being in restaurants and that, and so it hit me one day, you know, and I, she also was very much a person that would encourage me to write, you know, and she had read some short stories that I'd written and stuff like that. And she's like, man, you got a talent with this. You're wasting your time being a bartender and you should be pursuing this, whatever. And so one day it kind of hit me, you know, the inspiration. I don't know where that comes from, you know, it just, you can say it comes from God or the universe or whatever, but it hits me, a, a pirate who takes ships for whiskey. And from there I sat down and really started, started getting at it. And, um, and start writing. And to answer your original question, the, the greatest thing that anybody ever did for me, and it was everybody, it wasn't just one person, because so I started working at my, like I said earlier, my best friend buys a restaurant, it's called La Dolce Vita, it's in Frankfurt, it's a little further south in Joliet. And uh, he invited me to work for him and I haven't had work for him. I was like, yeah, man, I'll come and work for you for sure. So I had my release party there and it's like a book signing release party, that sort of thing, you know, and I'm telling everybody and I do have a page uh, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter or X or whatever it's called now called Literary Booze. And I put, put notifications on there and tell everybody, hey, you know, the book's out, come see me. I'm going to have a party on. It was in March. It was on a Wednesday night. And so walking into that day, we had about 40 people on the books for reservations, which is, you know, pretty solid for a Wednesday night or whatever. Right. And, um, but we really, I didn't have any idea what to expect of how many people were really going to be there. And as it turned out, by, we opened at four and by 3.30, you couldn't get a seat at the bar. And by five o'clock, you couldn't get a seat in the restaurant. And I mean, I ran around that place from literally 3.15 until about 10.30, and we closed at 9, but at 10.30, it was still half full because so many people had shown up for me that night 
that like to support me. I ended up selling about 90 books there and I signed about another 20 or 30 that people had bought and brought in. And and I it was so overwhelming. And and honestly, I never I can't tell you how much I appreciated or how blessed I felt to to have known this many people that had been pulling for me and wanted to show up for me and support me and you know really kick off my career as a writer and in a right foot or you know in a, in right. a great way and so i'll tell everybody you know even if i were to have a book signing with a hundred thousand people showing up which would be great and a great feeling i'm sure it won't be the same feeling i'll never feel that again because there, right. there was so many surprises i turn around i'd see somebody i worked with 10 years ago that i hadn't seen or talked to and oh yeah sure of course i was going to come in and support you you know when i Somebody I just when I first started writing a book, you know, they heard about it and they came in and and it, that that to me was probably the greatest thing that that my people have ever done for me. And I'll never forget that. Um, That's awesome. I got there we go. Yeah. We got some applause for that. One. All right. So, nice. I mean, because because that is neat having the you know, nowadays you can see it like if you're in some sort of industry and people can leave reviews or things because that I, mm -hmm. yeah, it's funny because I always say, if you read my reviews, you'd think I was a good salesman. And then if you talk to me, you would think, Oh my God, he hates feet so much. <laughs> but that's the, that's the thing oh, is, yeah. is I can, yeah. is I can live in a world where I both hate feet and can sell shoes at the same time because then yeah. I, then I change it. It's not about the feet at that point. It's just about helping the person. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. I can't believe I just well, said that. Sale, you know, well, I always say sales is sales, man. If yeah. you're good at selling, you can sell anything. It doesn't matter what somebody puts in front of you. You're going to be able to sell it. Right. And um, let me, let me ask this again. Cause I think I heard it. I just want to clarify for Facebook, Instagram, and X, it was at literary booze. Is that correct? Yep. Literary okay. booze. Yeah. Okay. So and what I, I was just going to say, I'll make sure that these links are on uh, when, so everyone that listened to the show, jump over to, to our Instagram account and you'll be able to see all the links for Alex as well. Uh, and then where you can uh, purchase a shot of Okies, uh, some other thing. So now that you, you have this, this community that is championing you and making you just know that, the, that you're on the right path writing this book. Uh, what was the next step then? I mean, what, or had you already completed it fully and you were just, well, cause so I've never, I, I can't even think about, right. Like to me, and I've had some, uh, artists, some singers on and like, I couldn't write a song for the life of me and I don't, well, maybe I could. And I, I could, I don't think I could write a book when I think about it. I'm great at writing notes. I have notebooks full of notes. I can write notes after notes after notes and, and uh, I can write questions, but as for, this is why I, I've tried um, uh, stand up a couple times and I'm not good. I'm not good at storytelling. I'm good at, uh. I'm good at interacting with people. I'm not good at, especially making something up. And then, cause you almost have to work from the beginning. This is how it's going to end. Now I have to figure out how to get there. Or am I wrong yeah, about that? Absolutely. Is no, that, that is that is actually advice that I give to some everybody who tells me they want to write a book. I tell them, you know what? Start with your ending, know your ending, and work backwards because then you know how to get there. Right. You know, it's 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 much easier to plan it out that way than to than to come up with your beginning and go, well, I don't know how it's going to end because you don't know the direction you need to take the book then. 
yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. That, um, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And let me ask you this: Were you ever fearful about um, either starting this de- endeavor, writing, or because it sounded like you wrote short stories and shared those? So it sounds like you had been writing. But was there ever a time where you were hesitant about either moving forward and self-publishing, or uh, or showing it to certain friends, family, well, whomever? You know, this is what I'll say to that. The the most ironic thing, and it's and I, I'm sure there's plenty of authors out there that are listening that might disagree with me on this, but in my opinion or in my experience, the most ironic thing about being a writer is the fear of have, having somebody read what you've written. Like there are a lot of people that have written stuff, but they don't want to let anybody read it because because they're afraid of it. They're you know it's your baby, right. something you throw a lot of a lot of time and investment into, and you know somebody look, reads it and goes, "Hey, I don't really like it." You know, it's painful. It is painful to hear that. Now, uh, one of the one of the ways where I was really lucky being a bartender and doing this is I bring down rough drafts of like a chapter and give them to my regulars to read and get feedback, and that feedback ended up being invaluable. Now. Again, you know, I'm standing behind the bar making drinks, talking to other people while somebody's reading my book. And I can tell you, I'm glancing over to see how their reaction is as they're reading it. Are they laughing? Are they, you know, pounding? Is there, you know, like I'm trying to, you know, you know, it's one of those situations where you're going, hmm, how are they, how do they feel about it? But, and, and at first, yeah, I wanted to hear this is the greatest thing in the world and I love your writing and I love the book and I love this. But after a while, I realized the, the best feedback that I was getting was the stuff that said, you know, this doesn't make sense to me, or I don't like this word here, or, or the criticism that you don't want to hear. Because when they were being honest with me about that, then I could say, okay, I need to change this. I can make it better. You know what I mean? Well, and that's a, that was going to be my next question. So I'm 56 years old, and back in the uh, 70s and early 80s, when I was in junior high and high school, um, and we had to write papers. We were still doing this on typewriters, so you couldn't oh, yeah. like you couldn't write a whole paper and go, "I want to just replace this," because I think I would have done much better. My problem is if I had to retype it, I wanted to redo it because I got into just like you said, I can make this better, and and that was my own criticism. I mean, my mom would read it, and then uh, I would change it, and then she'd read it again. She goes, "This is not even the same story." And I go, "I know it's better," mm-hmm. and, it, and it would frustrate mm-hmm. her because she wanted me to take whatever I had and just enhance it or tweak it, where I would find I can totally overhaul this. And that was one of my problems. I think now the way that you could edit, I would probably be a little more focused and. It would take less time. But when I sat at a typewriter, I found that I could always make it better. So that while you were talking, I actually wrote down, do you ever even think to yourself, I can do better every time? Like you rewrite a certain section or part or chapter, and then when you're finished with it, go, I think I can actually make that better. Oh, and like redo the, the whole thing. You do? Okay. All the time. Yeah. And, and I would say to you, the book that's published, this is a trilogy. I don't know if I said that before, but the one that's published... Like I could go through that again today and make changes. You know, at some point you have to say, okay, I need to, I need to say this is good enough. It's never going to be perfect, right? But it's good enough that I can let it go and move on to the next thing. And you know, go, kind of going back to what you were saying before about being a storyteller and that, 
some of the other advice that I give people when it comes to writing a book is, you know, you got to write what you know. You have stories from your life, you know, that, that accident that you got into. You could tell this, the story of that day up until the moment that that car T-boned you. You know, that's a hell yeah. of an ending to a story. And that's the story that you write. You write what you know. You could write about selling. There's got to be a day where you sold something where you were like, man, that's a great. And you had the high from the success from it. And, you know, you convey that feeling of the high and how you went about selling it and how it all played out. You know, again, that's a story that you can tell that you know. The biggest mistake that people make, there's, there's two of them, if you ask me. The first one is they want to conceptualize something that they have no frame of reference for, you know. I could never tell a good um, story about, like, being a soldier in World War II because I never served in the military. So right. I don't know. Maybe if I did a ton of research, and yes, there's things in my book from 1743 that obviously I never sailed on a wooden ship. Um, but it would take a lot more for me to do that sort of thing and make it credible. Right. Um, where somebody who's in the military could tell a story about being in Iraq where you go, wow, okay, man, that's, that's the real deal because that dude lived it. Um, the second biggest mistake, and this kind of goes with what you're saying too, is that people sit down thinking they're going to write the best seller, and you're not. You're going to write the rough draft. And from there, you're going to polish it, and you're going to edit it, and you're going to reread it, and you're going to go, you know what, this word would be better here, or this sentence would be better phrased this way, or this scene might be better in the beginning of the chapter as opposed to the end of the chapter, because books are really, they're living things in a certain sense as you're writing them, and they're going to evolve in your mind. There's days when I get done, and I think, man, it's perfect, and then, you know, I'm cooking dinner or whatever that night, and I'm going, oh, man. I got to put this line in there or, oh man, if I could, if I could add this element to it, you know, maybe it's some weather or, or a lightning strike, or maybe it's a sunset, or maybe it's just a little bit of description on the scene or a smell or something like that, but it brings the, the scene more alive. And, and that's really when you're writing, um, as opposed to when you're just sitting down, like tapping out words, if that makes any sense. You're looking for ways to really, you know, make it, tangible for the reader right now let me ask you this alex you had said that uh this is a trilogy you're the first far, part of the trilogy has been uh published at this point yeah so ha have the others already been written or you you have the concept so I, how does that work because i think i heard at one point like that they filmed um Back to the Future 2 and 3 at the same time because the stories were already done and everyone was there, the cast was there. So it yeah, made yeah. it much easier to do. So, or do you write the first one once that's published, then you, then the, the second and the third act take, take shape? Or I guess you already have to have a little bit of a shape. So, how does that work with a trilogy? Did you, so very well, first thing I guess I should ask, did you know from the very beginning, from the get go, this is a trilogy? No. Okay. Um, there's a story to this, and I can tell you this story. Sure. Because when I sat down, man, you know, I, I got this idea in my head. And I and, and one of the other bits of advice I give everybody is do outlines. You know, outline it, outline it, outline it. And I did not do that. And that's probably the reason why it took so long. I just felt the inspiration. And it's like starting a marathon, man, where you, you're going to sprint and you're going to run and you're going to – and then, you know, all of a sudden you realize, well, this is a whole lot longer. I better pace myself. 
And what had happened was I got about 55, 60 pages into it. And I realized, wow, man, this is going to be a whole lot longer than just a book. Because that's what I was thinking it was going to be. Um, but, you know, I'm 55, 60 pages into it. So I got to, you know, at this point, I'm not turning around either. Right. I've waited out far enough into this the sea that I'm going to keep going. And so that's when I kind of stepped back and, and did more, okay, outlining or see, looking at the bigger picture and, and figure out where it's going to go. Now, as it's at the beginning, the idea was to write the first book, publish it, write the second book, publish it, write the third book, publish it. But the problem with writing historical fiction is you don't know what you don't know. And there's lots of things that we take for granted today that didn't exist back then. And some of them are words. And one of those words for me was the word shot. And I'd written the entire first book with the idea of my characters, you know, I'll buy a shot, we'll have a shot, we'll do a right. shot. And, the, and then I had this kid come popping in the work and he said, hey, I heard the origin of the term shot. You know what it is? And I looked at him and said, I didn't know there was an origin of the term shot. And there's actually two of them. The first one goes to England, where a shot is an ounce of alcohol. Well, in America, it's an ounce and a half of alcohol. And they say, if you're in England and you want the extra little shot, well, you better throw your bartender an extra little shot. And so it referred to tipping. Um, the second one goes to the American West, where cowboys didn't carry money, but they carried bullets. And a 45 caliber round was 12 cents. A shot of whiskey was 12 cents. So it was a barter system. I'll trade you a shot for a shot. The problem with both is they're about 100 years after my book, so my characters wouldn't have a frame of reference for the use of the word shot that way. So I literally had to go through and rewrite my book again and, like, you know, change those sorts of references. And at that point, I realized, man, I better at least write the rough drafts for all three, get them down, run into all the things that I might run into, create all the characters that I might need to create. Because one of the other things I hate as a reader is when I get to an end of a book and suddenly the Superman character shows up and saves the day. And you go, where would that person even come from? You right. know what I mean? And so I thought to myself, if there's going to be somebody who's important in the third book, I better at least reference them in the first book. And it introduce them in the second book so that way when the third book comes around you go okay this makes sense now you know so so that's kind of what took it 10 years to get to this point was that you know i i got through and i got through the rough draft at least three times on each book just to work all that stuff out part of it was the timelines you know back in those days it took eight to ten weeks to cross the atlantic and so if there was news in the Caribbean, well, it was going to take eight to 10 weeks to get to England. And at one point, I'm writing a uh, chapter, and I'm writing this section, and I knew there was something wrong with it, but I couldn't figure out exactly what it was. And then I realized I got people in Scotland that are discussing events in the Caribbean that had only taken place three weeks ago. And at that point, it's sort of like, well, that's impossible. You right. know, they didn't have telephones. They didn't have the internet. They didn't carrier pigeons couldn't make it that far so then i had to go okay i got to go back again and i gotta i gotta figure out the timeline and i gotta reset everything and so and so that's how it worked out for me to where all three books got written before i took the first one to the next step and at this point i'm now almost ready to bring the second book to the next step which would be you know getting it to the publisher um, I, get, I do have a couple more. I want to go through it a couple more times. Like I said, you can go through these things a million times, but I do want to go through it a couple more times and just make sure I got all the little details ironed out and uh, before I get to that. But then the third book, that still needs right, a and, lot of work. That's good. And I'm going to interject this real quick. Have you ever asked AI like to like a, an AI is some, 
I don't know which one, and I don't even know if you could do this, whether you could ask it to review your draft and identify any out-of-time references. I mean, I, I wonder if AI is smart enough to do that, whether it would be able to look at that and, and be able to identify that. The word shot, you know, come back and say the word shot wasn't first used until 1706 or, you know, or I guess that would be Whatever before is, then. Yeah, yeah 1806. You know, I, I don't know whether that would work or not, but have you used AI to try to help you at all in this? Because I know AI is all the rage, so I'm just wondering, because this oh, was 10 years, so AI was not probably Not even there. much talked about. Oh. So now that you oh. you've finished your three books, have you have you yet or have you considered using AI to help? I have not. Okay. But I have had this conversation with other people. And you know, part AI is a tool. And part of it is figuring out how do I make this tool work for me. And you know, as a writer, what you just said is actually I never conceived that idea of using AI like that, but I might because, you know, it's easy. There's plenty of other words that are like that. Okay is a word that's like that, you know, and I didn't know that. But I bet you AI could be a great tool for for identifying out of place or out of context. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's situations. why that's why I just love d talking to people because I mean, I have ideas I've never had. Be I mean, I just that would be cool. And I think and if it can't do that, then what good is AI? Well, you know? I mean, if it can't do something like identify, you know, like you forgot that you put on Constantine, you forgot he was wearing his Apple Watch 10, you know, well, oh, that, he didn't have that in 1743? Oh, my bad. Well, you know, on that note, it's easy. It's like one of my characters gets wounded. And it's easy in a later chapter to forget that that wound is there. But, oh. you know, the, the healing process is a way that you, is like a, t a way that you advance time. You know, he's scarred, still very open and raw. Well, it's only been a week since that battle. Two months from that battle, well, now it's going to be kind of pinkish. And you know what I mean? Um, but it's easy to forget those sorts of little details as an author. And that's another well, way. Well, that's what I was going to ask. It could be very Yeah, I was going to ask if you, ha if you could even remember all of those things. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's the note taking. I mean, I got lots of little scribbles, a piece of paper, you know, mention this, mention, mention that, you know, you got to pick up this in chapter four. It's got to be that, you know, even clothing that they wear, you know, because um, if, if you, and I write this, this book is written where it's kind of three different narratives going on at one time. So you have Mary, who's a Scotswoman and, and she's, and, and I guess it's a good time to kind of summarize the book. Yeah, I was going to ask do. that because we've been talking about yeah. the book set in 1743 about bourbon and pirates. So, but we haven't really talked about uh, the talk about what it's right. about. Yeah. So basically, it's like this: I play with the history of whiskey. Now, whiskey's been around since about at least the 1400s, but probably longer than that in Britain. And whiskey's grain alcohol. Barley's the native grain of Britain, and that's why the Scots and the Irish started making whiskey out of barley way back when. Now, during the age of exploration, everywhere they went, they'd find a native grain and they'd start making whiskey out of it. So when they get to America, corn's native to America, they start making whiskey out of corn, and that's the first step in making bourbon. 
The second step came about when, at the time, everything was shifting wooden barrels. That was only so one man could roll it. It had nothing to do with the aging process because they didn't age it because you couldn't trust water. So if you add a little bit of alcohol to it, it's going to kill anything, and then it might kill you first and make it safe to drink. And so as a result, if you were making a batch of whiskey and you had a barrel made out of pine, well, you just fill that up and you'd send it on its way. You can imagine how it might affect the taste, but they just sort of dealt with it. But then they get to America and they start making barrels out of white American oak and they'd fill those up and they'd send them on their way. And everybody was like, wow, man, this is great. Whatever you're doing, keep it up. So that they realized it and they associated the two. And, and that was the second step in making bourbon. And then the third step came about when you had your white American oak barrel it was filled with pickles or herring or crabs. You can imagine how something like that might affect the taste. And so they started charring out the inside to get rid of the lingering flavors and odors and realized, wow, man, we really got something now. And so that's how bourbon was born. Now, with everything whiskey, the history is very murky. And that's definitely the case with this. And they say it's 1785, but by that point, it was already a thing. I come up with the corn, you came up with the barrel, your wife had come up with ch charring it out, and we all kind of compare notes through the years. And so what I do is I go back to 1743. At the time, it's the last true Scottish rebellion against the English, but that was a very small part of a much larger war. The whole world was at war. And I'm a young Scotswoman in America named Mary, and she's stumbling on that process of making uh, bourbon. And then at the same time, there's an Irish pirate named Clarkson. And every time she hears about an English ship that has a barrel of her Okies aboard, she seizes it, she accuses the captain of smuggling, and she executes them. And you know how guys are. The more dangerous something is for us, the more we're going to want it. Oh, yeah. So as her legend grows, the stories cross the Atlantic, and they, they reach a pirate hunter who's fighting the war. And he's got to decide if he comes wants to come and hunt her down. But that's when I start getting later into the story. Um, and the way I kind of tell it is that it's there's three narratives. There's Mary, the Scotswoman, and then the next chapter would be Clarkson, the pirate. And the next chapter after that is the skipper, who's the pirate hunter. And as you read it, you know, it's kind of like Game of Thrones, where you kind of piece the uh, 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 storyline together, draw these different perceptions. And, and it starts out with this old sea captain wandering into a bar in Kingston, in 1785, and he, when he sits down, the, the bartender asks him, you know, what can I get for you? And he says, well, I was really hoping for a shot of Okies. And she says, I never heard such a thing. What is it? And he says, well, to truly answer that question, I'd be getting into the story. And so the beginning of her chapter kind of comes back to that old sea captain who takes you to the next narrative. Um, and so, you know, I forgot. Oh, we got hit to this point because it was like this, because I would be I would talk about Mary in chapter one, and then she's not going to, you know, you're not going to revisit her until chapter four. Well, in chapter four, if it's the very next day, she's got to be dressed the same or, you know, she's got to be in a, there's got, if there's something that was in that first chapter that would carry over to the fourth chapter, some little detail, whatever it was, I had to make sure to mention it. And that was very much a very tricky part to writing the book and writing it this way. And it's the same with you know, Clarkson or the Skipper or whatever else, you know, all these characters, like I said, if one of them got wounded, well, then I had to make sure I'd mention that wound in a later chapter. And right. it's easy to forget those details. Right. And then, so once it's published, can't, uh, I guess that's what additions, like a second, maybe, I don't oh, yeah. know. I mean, so is that yeah. something of you're like, oh shit, I, th that shouldn't have been there. I forgot. I should have revisited this or or something so you can't yeah. go back and edit that okay 
Well, you can, you know, again, it's additions um, and authors do it all the time. Uh, now, that's part of the reason why I'm doing it the way I'm doing it, where I got the story nailed down and I'm comfortable in that saying that. And uh, that way I sh I'm, you know, I hope that I don't have to make those sort of changes later on. Right. But you can do it. I'm just, you know. I'm just really, really trying to avoid it. And that's part of the reason why it took 10 years to get to this point. Right. So do you, do you have any fears about the, so once you got this first one uh, published, have you, I mean, did that change your outlook on the second and third installments? Did it, it go, Oh, the, you know, I've done that. Now I can move. I mean, it, was there any sense of accomplishment? And I asked because, my my uncle, my mom's brother, she would always get frustrated because he's an artist and would do like uh, he's been working like with paper sculptures and things. And it's just amazing. Okay. But she would get yeah. my mom would get frustrated with him because he wouldn't finish things. And I said okay. that I, I thought without talking to him, I go, I, I don't think you understand. I think in his mind that once it's finished, it's done. And so by him yes. not finishing it. It, it leaves it open and, and there's still like there's some anticipation that he can revisit it or something. So once your first installment was published, did you have a, 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 a feel like a weight was lifted? Did it feel like more pressure now? What, what were those feeling once that first one's uh, completed? You know, it was a feeling of responsibility, I guess, is the best way that I could answer it, because now... <sighs> The books out there there's people reading it they right. want to know the rest of the story oh yeah so i'm responsible to them now it's not you know the story and, and this is another thing that i advise people when they say they want to sit down and write a book you got to write it for yourself you right. can't write it because you think you're going to be a best-selling author you're actually lucky if you can be a best-selling author um so you got to sit down and you got to write it because you got to get the story out it's inside you you're inspired and you got to get at it now once it's out and people start reading it, well, then all of a sudden it's not just about me anymore. It's about them. It's about the people that come up to me and say to me, hey, man, I love that first book. When's the next book coming out? And now I got to tell them, oh, shit, man, I'm hoping to have it out in like a year or so, you know? And, and it, it puts, I don't, it doesn't put pressure. I, I can't tell you that I have feel pressure by that because I'm going to write it the way it's going to be written. Is it motivation? Are you feeling motivation? It's, it's, it's motivation, it's, it's, it's inspiration, but it's the responsibility that, okay, man, there's people that really like this. And, and even if it's only 10 people, there's still 10 people that want to know how this story ends. And so I feel that like, I got to stay dedicated to it, to finish it for them any more than I do for me, if that makes any sense. And I still feel the drive internally for myself. And I'm hoping that at one point I get this thing done and I can, Focus. I got other things I want to write. I can focus on some of that, but for now, man, it's this is what I'm going to do, and and I feel the responsibility of having to see it through. Well, I didn't even think of that about a trilogy because that that is one thing that I have liked with TV, especially like the uh, Yellowstone thing that's going on because they oh, went yeah. they went yeah. back to like I don't know whatever year, but it was one season and it was done. They told the whole arc yeah. was done in one season because that would be frustrating if you would get into a show and then it wouldn't get renewed and it was like an eternal uh, yeah, cliffhanger. Yeah. And I never thought about that. You basically 
by making a trilogy, you kind of screwed yourself because you do have to come out with episodes two yeah. and three now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. yeah, I didn't even think of that part of it. So so yeah. on the horizon with uh, installments two and three on the horizon, what is the thing that you're anticipating looking forward to the most about the the near future for this trilogy? You know, I think, okay, this is going to be another kind of story. Like the, the cover, I love my cover. The cover art is, I, I say... You know, it's probably better than the book. I have to live up to it. And I found my artist through Instagram. And the story behind it is this, you know, being in, being in restaurants and bars, I know a ton of artists. I thought it was going to be easy to find somebody to do my cover. Right. But I wanted one of those old style painted covers from the 80s, you know. Right. And it was very, most of the people I know are young and they just don't know that style. And and so one of one of the people I was talking to said, you know, it's, I think it's pronounced Gauche. It's like G-A-U-A-C-H-E or something like that. Uh-huh. And uh, she said, if you can find somebody that can do that, you know, you got your you got your artist. So I'm scrolling through Instagram and I find this, you know, I'm looking at that style and I find this portrait of the girl that that's my pirate, man. I'm looking at that. Oh, man, she's her. And then I'm just looking through cover art and I find this 80s cover that's pretty much kind of what I'm looking for. And I, I tag them both and it turns out it was the same guy, you know, so I reach out to him. And I say, oh, man, I got this great idea and blah, 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 blah. And I want you to do this. And I want you to do that. And da, 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 da. And his response was, that's all very interesting. What's your budget? You know, which, right. you know, fair enough, man. Fair enough. And so we kind of go back and forth. And in the course of that, he's telling me, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. I'm a professional. I've done 400 book covers. Like, you're going to get what you pay for with me, you know, and, and it's going to be worth it. And it was a lot more than I expected. But, you know, it's a cover. And right. I... I, you know, you're that's the first the impression. The yeah, I mean, it, yeah, if, if it's exactly. out, and, and I don't know how many bookstores are still left, but I loved going to bookstores, and that's what would catch your eye. I mean, they would put yeah, it on an end cap, and you have a, a, if you had a crappy cover, no one's looking at the crappy cover. I mean, so. No, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so the process with that, you know, we have a conversation. Um, he sends me a sketch like a black and white, just sketch. And I look at it, I'm like, all right, man, we're on the same page, you know, give him some feedback, we talk colors. And then he, he sends me what's called the color comp, which is like, you know, the cover as it would stand, um, when making sure that the colors that, that he's using are what I have in mind and whether I like it and this and that. And, and again, you know, I'm, we're on the same page. I give him a little bit of feedback, what I'm looking for, some little details. And then he took that, color comp and he used that as a template for the actual painting now the process for this was a good year and a half um so if anybody's out there thinking about doing it give yourself plenty of time from the cover now part of that was because it started in covid uh i was working a ton because we didn't have any you know that was during the restaurant labor shortage and so i was having a hard time even working on my book and i said you know go ahead and take your time but you know he had said to me from the beginning expect it to take a good year now when I got the first book published, I had reached out to him and, and said, hey, you know, and we, you know, I'd like to think that we became friends through the process. And I said, you know, I want to hire you for the second one. And, and I told him at the time, and he had told me at, that, hey, I can't read every book that I do the cover for, so don't expect me to read your book. <laughs> but by the end of it, he said, you know, I'm going to go ahead and read your book. I'm, I'm interested in it. Maybe the cover or whatever, you know, he's kind of kidding around with me. And so I told him, you know, if you got an idea 
if you read the first book and you say, I got this cover for the second book, knock yourself out, man. I don't even have to see it. We don't have to walk through that process. You just send me what you got when it's ready. And, you know, I have complete faith that it's going to be, it's going to be wonderful. And that's one of the things I'm excited for the most. And, and I do have to reach out to them and let them know where I'm at in the process. Just, you know, cause I, cause obviously getting the cover is right. You can't beat him to the finish line by too much. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but I am very much looking forward to seeing what he comes up with for me. And then, you know, the other thing I would say that I'm really looking forward to is is doing another release party, you know, having everybody that showed up before I, I gotta do, I haven't come up with what I'm going to do, but I got to do something to just show my appreciation for them. You know, when they, everybody that comes, that comes around the second time around and who knows, maybe it'll be bigger and it would be awesome if it was. And, and then that, the best part about it is a lot of them know each other because they all come into the restaurant, you know, they all, they all gotten to know each other from being regulars for the years. So it kind of becomes a big party in that respect. And uh, it's a great time. And so I'm very much looking forward to that. And, you know, like I enjoy doing, I've been doing other podcasts. I'm, I'm trying to do other podcasts. If there's any podcasters out there listening that they want to feature me as a guest, by all means, reach out to me through Literary Booze. But I enjoy this part of it, you know. I, I enjoy talking to people. I, you know, having people interested in my book, wanting to listen to me. And hopefully, you know, when I tell some of my bartending stories and tell some of my writing stories, I inspire some other people to, to take the jump or take the plunge as well. Yeah, and that's why I'd asked that. That's why I'd asked the question earlier whether it took you, like, if you just decided to do it, um, because with with podcasting, I, I've now I just uh, recently released my two hundred and fiftieth episode. You're actually way down the line. Sorry, Alex. You're in the two sixties, okay. I, I believe. But uh, so I've okay. been doing I've been doing this for a while, but I actually delayed for a year. I, I kept just telling myself, no one wants to hear my voice. But what changed is as soon as I started thinking like you did, that I am doing this podcast for me so that I can learn things, so that I can enjoy. I mean, because there are a lot of things that we've talked about tonight. I personally am not going to go out and write a, a, a novel. At least I don't think so because I just haven't been motivated to do so, but it is interesting learning about all the different nuances about, I mean, even the words, I wouldn't have thought about that. I Uh, probably would have, uh, but there would have been way down the list before I would have got to it. And you know, that's, you kind of learn as you go without a doubt, you know, I'll tell you that for sure. But you know, it's all learning. Any new experience that you take on is going to be a learning process. You got to kind of go easy on yourself that way. Right. So uh, but doing the podcast, what's that? No, I was going to go ahead and finish. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, doing number one, congratulations on 250 shows. Thank That's you. Great. But, but I imagine doing the podcast is, is a similar thing. You know, we all have to have our creative outlet or that thing that, that, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, you know, the thing that doesn't define us through work that that we enjoy doing that we you know gives us kind of that added purpose in life and and hey man if podcasting is it for you that's great man i you know i don't it, and it's funny because being a bartender i have had people tell me you should do podcasts but it's just not going to be i i don't 
I respect it, obviously. I mean, here I am talking to you, but for me, the drive isn't there to right. want to do it, if yeah. that makes sense. So I don't, and I don't know if I'd be, I don't know if I'd be all that good at it without having that, that drive, like what yeah. you have. And I, I think part of it is I just have this uh, eternal quest for knowledge, even if it's not knowledge that I'm going to put into application, because I'm not going to, I don't, I can't say never, but I don't think I'm going to write a book or a novel. That being said, I have found it immensely interesting, the information that I found out from you over the past hour, because, you know, I I wouldn't have thought about where I would have thought about things that were out of place because I, I watch a lot of movies. And, you know, every once in a while you'd be like, that watch wasn't made back then or this wasn't, yeah, you know, yeah, you would see things out yeah. of place. And, and that's a visual. I can't even imagine being being the written word and then having to identify all those because especially yeah. if you if you're having to edit or go through this this is why I guess having someone be able to be a trusted source to read and kind of edit and do that because you're so used to the text that you it, you wrote it once so what makes you think you're going to see it when you're reading it going back through very much so yeah. and you get tunnel vision as a writer very much so yeah. and 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 you need you know, again, that's why I say, you know, I'm lucky to be a bartender for a lot of things, but that's why I was really lucky to be a bartender because I could bring it in and give it to people and, and they could look at it and go, no, nah, man. And, and even sometimes they'd say, this is a better way to phrase it. Right. Damn, man, that is a better way to phrase it. Thank you. You know, and you need that feedback. You need, and it's hard to find that in writing communities, to be honest with you. A lot of writers don't want to put out there what they're doing afraid of right other writers stealing their ideas and, and then there's a lot of writers that don't even want to they won't talk about their creative process because they're afraid if they do they'll jinx it and so yeah. you know it's it's can be difficult for writers to find those trusted people for yeah. sure but it sounds like you you have found at least one that has helped you get to this point. So let me ask this. So part one, installment one, is called a shot of Okies. Do you have a shot of you have uh, is installment two and or three, or do you already have set titles for them? For for book two, yes, it's called the King's Firkin. It's uh, Firkin is F I R K I N. And what and it's, it's the what the firk is a firkin? It's a it's a little cask. I get asked that a lot. It's like uh, you know you have when you think of barrels. Well, a barrel is a cask. It's a size of liquid measurement. So you have hogsheads, which are the largest barrels or casks, so to speak. And then a runlet is the smallest one. A runlet would be something like that you could pick up. You know, a keg is a bartender. That's right. a cask, so to speak. And a firkin is a little bit bigger than a runlet. So it'd be something that you know. Like boxed um, wine. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, well, it's more like a pony keg. Okay. It's more like a pony keg. Pony keg, that makes okay. Any sense. Yeah. So, and it's um, called and a, so ki- a King's Firkin? The, the King's Firkin. The yeah. King's Firkin, okay. Yeah, yeah. And it's a reference to uh, the first book. There's a, a situation in the first book that it's a reference to. Okay. So, so, so when people have finished reading the first one, as soon as they see the title of the second one, it, it will ring a, it should ring a bell for them. Yeah. Yeah. And actually at the end of the first book, I, I did uh, include the first chapter of the second book Ooh. kind of as a teaser to give right. you a little taste of what's coming, but also, you know, so that you could see the title and know when it's coming out. Right. 
That's the third book, I have not figured that one out yet. I'm kind of hoping that comes to me in the next, I don't know, three months or so. So do you have any- I got e- some ideas. You have an, do you have an ETA for the King's Firkin? Do you have a, a, a street date or a release date in mind for that, well, or a target date? I'm hoping April, May at the latest. You know, I, I, the production side of it involves a lot of people, and I will have it edited. Um, anybody who's curious, the editing costs about, at least where, who I'm going through, is 1.3 cents per word. So on 100,000 words, it adds up pretty quick. But right. I am going to have it edited. So that's a process. And then there's a formatting where they, you know, kind of make it, take it from being looking like a term paper to turning it into looking like a book. And that's part of a process. And then again, you know, the cover, I got to wait on the artist. And a creative process for an artist is similar to an author, man. You can't rush it. You just got to kind of let it happen. And so, you know, that's why I can't give you a firm date right now per se. But I'm hoping, because then it'll be about a year in between. So I'm hoping right. April, May at the latest. Right. So do you think that one, with the third book in mind, do you already have what you want to move on to next? Uh, so recently oh, I had yeah. an author on, and he had a trilogy, and it was they were going to add a fourth. He was going to add a fourth. It was always going to be a trilogy, and then once it was done, he's like, I needed a fourth book. So are, are, you, are you set with this trilogy, and you're ready to move on to something else, or do you think that you may revisit the trilogy at some point, or do like a, what, like a, a TV show like a spinoff or something? No, 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 no. It's done. Okay. It'll be done after this one. Without a doubt, you know, the ending is done. It's written. I know how it ends. It's all that sort of stuff. Um, the loose ends are tied up. It's, uh, I, this one will be done and I'll move on. But I do have other things that I want to write. Absolutely. Um, a lot of it's actually based on restaurants. Is it? Um, so what What would know. be, what do you think that the, 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 the theme or the thread, whatever, the narrative of your next, if you had to decide, if you had to tell a publisher or something what the next title after this trilogy or what the next theme is going to be, what would you say right now today? Well, actually, what I'm going to do is it's going to be a website, and it's, it's going to be called Literary Booze, and I'm going to basically create a, and I have a lot of stories written for this already that I've, I did in the past. And sometimes here and there, I'll, I'll write one because it hits me. But basically, what I'm going to do is create a uh, restaurant bar where when you go to the site, you'll see the floor plan, you know. So you'll see, like, Alex is bartending and, and Liz is serving and Jackie's managing. And, you know, if you click on Alex, it'll be a hyperlink. It takes you to the story of Alex behind the bar that day, whatever it is. And the idea of these stories is that you'd be able to read them about 20 minutes, about the time that it takes to have a smoke or, you know, have a drink if you're sitting at the bar. Right. And in there, you know, you'll have the regulars, let's say Bill and Uncle Mark or, or uh, Rags. And if you like Bill, you could click on that and it'll take you to a hyperlink. It would have Bill stories or, you know, Uncle Mark stories in the restaurant, whether they're in, whether they're behind the bar while I'm working it or behind the bar while Jackie's behind the bar or Liz is behind the bar. And then you do the same sort of thing. If you click on Liz, it's going to be a story that she tells or from her perception of the day. And so the idea is kind of that when you sit down, you could you could take it and start reading one way and somebody else could sit down and, and start reading and go a completely different way. And you're going to get, it's going to feel like you, you're in a bar and you know, you're in a restaurant and 
and the experiences of being both working in a restaurant or being a regular in a restaurant or whatever. And so it'll be a book with no beginning and no end. And you know, and so you could choose the, which order you, you could, who you're reading you about. Choose, yeah, you can choose whichever way you want it to go. And that's really like, like more than this. Don't get me wrong, man. This is like a, this is a big deal to me. And, and but that's really like if I'm going to pin my my writing career on anything, that's what I want to work toward pinning it on. Um, and I'm and, and and so that's part of why. You know, I've stayed dedicated to get this done. I want to get it done. I'm hoping to have the third book out by the following year. So that way I can move on to it and start really digging in and the literary booze and making it happen. Okay. Now, now, currently, when I do the the Instagram page and the Facebook page, what I do is I highlight an author every month and, you know, do quotes and text about their lives. Uh, this month was E.E. E. Cummings. I'm trying to think who the next month is. Um but ultimately, if you go there, you know, and you follow it every day, I do a post, you know, and kind of respond to it. And then, like I said, if I have announcements, sometimes I do dramatic readings and post them on there, um, stuff like that. But eventually, I want this to evolve into this concept of this book of no beginning and no end. And this is what it's like to be in a restaurant. That that's really cool. So I'm gonna I'm gonna follow this up with one final question, I guess. So. Uh, okay. When you were mentioning the, the the future with this this almost like a live book going on, you had mentioned the names Bill, Uncle Mike, and Liz. All of those I could just say, oh, that's someone. But then you also said Rags. Now Rags seems rags. like that may be based on a real because it's like Bill, sure, a Bill, Uncle Mike, sure, Uncle Mike down the street, Liz, oh Liz, and then it's Rags. There seems like there's a story behind the character Rags. So Rags is my first regular ever. And Rags was a, he was a World War II vet. He was in the army. He was stationed in Hawaii on December 7, 1941. Wow. Um, so he was there. He fought the Japanese all the way up to Tokyo. And I mean, when I say to you, he was the first regular that, that I got to know at Maury's way back when. He was the first one. And, and Rags is actually in a shot of Okies. There's, you know, in that first beginning scene with the old sea captain, Rags is sitting at that bar. And Rags is Rags, man. And and I used to always kid with him. You know, when he turned 93, he lived to be about 98. When he turned 93, I looked at him that day and I said, geez, I guess if I want to live a long time, I got to do a whole lot more smoking, drinking, and carousing. <laughs> and he, you know, Rags had this way. He'd go, ah, he'd laugh. Ah, you son of a bitch. And, uh, you know, but he became, he's a really good friend of mine. And, and I really respected him. He respected me, told me a lot of great stories, uh, really learned a lot. You know, you learn a lot from people who have experienced what he experienced because you learn life at its very most basic um, uh, situations, I guess I'd say. And so, yeah, rags, rags is rags. And if you pick up my book, A Shot of Okies, you'll get to know rags. In fact, I've had people that knew him that have read it and said to me, man, it's almost spooky how much he's, you remind me of him. And, uh, and, and he will always, everything I write, there will be a rags if there's a bar because he's just one of them guys. Now, Bill, I can, if you want to hear another story sure. real quick before we end it up. Okay. Yeah. So Bill is, is one, probably one of my second best regulars. He started coming in literally 15 years ago when I, when I was in the transition time and, decided I wanted to be a full-time bartender. And, and I, the place I was, I was at, 
it was very busy and we we'd have three bartenders on a course of night we have one doing the service well for the servers and then we'd have one doing the bar top and then we had we had high tops and the other one would be doing the high tops i was doing the service well that night and he was picking up a carryout order and he, he sat down and the order was running a little late and so he sat down orders a drink and i start chatting with him and he's he's a vietnam vet and um so he's got very much you know he's he's got a sense of humor too let's put it that way and so he's kind of starting busting my stones a little bit. And like I said, this was a corporate restaurant. He had to be a little more leery about the interaction that way. But I grew up working with these guys who were all World War II vets and Korean War vets and Vietnam vets. So I kind of knew how to react to them. And so we're going back and forth a little bit. And at the end of it, he says to me, uh, you know, I got one more question for you. And I go, what's that? He goes, are all the other bartenders here assholes or are you the only one? And I looked at him and I said, well, judging by the people I attract, I think I'm the biggest one. And he's literally been coming in almost every shift ever since. Unless he goes out of town or, you know, is incapacitated some way, I, I know I'm going to see him every one of my shifts. And again, he's becoming a really good friend of mine and I've done private parties for him and stuff like that. And, and uh, you know, it's those people that really stick with you. So, yeah. And, that, and that's neat that it, you, they, they've impacted your life so much that they've either become characters or influenced characters in your writing. That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that kind of goes back to what I said. You know, you write what you know. So it's much easier for me to create characters when I look at them and I go, well, this is going to be like Bill, because then I know his mannerisms. I know the way he sounds. You know, you might want to change the way they look to keep yourself from getting into trouble. Unless that person is, is is honored to be in that situation, but in the end, if you can develop characters based on the people in your real life, it makes it much easier as a writer. Right. Yeah. And that's the problem on a podcast is that I can't I can't disassociate myself with that. So some of my real life characters, and I don't do the best job of veiling them all the time. So. And uh, let's yeah. just say when I'm doing that, I'm probably not speaking of them glowingly like you may be in your writings. Well, you know, there's people <laughs> that are characters that I don't necessarily speak of glowingly either. There you let's go. Just put it that way. Okay. You know? Hey, Alex, uh, let, let me ask you this. I probably should have asked you this at the top of the, the program, or at least when we started talking about uh, A Shot of Oaks. Uh, where can they go to purchase this book um, currently? So it's on Amazon. It's on uh, Barnes & Noble websites. And then you can get it through the publisher's website that's exuberous. Um, and yeah. then I, this is what I say to everybody. You know, if you're in the Chicagoland area, you reach out to me at Literary Booze and tell me when you're going to be there. I'll tell you when I'm working. And you can come down and get it from me at the bar, and I'll make you your favorite drink at the same time. That is awesome. That is so cool. So, um, and that that is neat that they can go out and, and buy the book. Uh, that is neat that you had offered to uh, to have them reach out to you as well because it, it's been a real joy talking to you. Uh, I hope that we can uh, circle back around because I would like to uh, hear more as you get closer to your anticipated release date of maybe next April or May that maybe we can uh, touch base again because I'd really like to see from where we are today what, if anything, has changed and how that has changed, better, worse, or indifferent. So I would love to circle back around because it's been a lot of fun talking to you. Oh, yeah, no, no problem. It's been great to be here. It's been fun for me, too. And, yeah, I'll, I'll absolutely, when I got a hard 
date uh, coming up, I'll reach out to you and we can go from there. Okay, that sounds great. Uh, for everyone listening to the show, uh, this was Alex Bennett. Uh, you can find him at Literary Booze. That's at Facebook, Instagram, and formerly Twitter, now X. So at Literary Booze, which is, I hope I'm spelling this right, L-I-T-E-R-A-R-Y-B-O-O-Z-E. That's correct. Okay, perfect. So, and for everyone, you can always go to the Stone Genius Instagram page. I will have all these links on there as well. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for being part of the program. It's really great to talk to you today and get uh, and get to know you and, and hear about your stories of your 35 years in the restaurant and bartending industry, and also about uh, your your currently released uh, book, A Shot of Okies, and then also about what you have on the horizon with this trilogy. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's yeah. an honor to be here. I appreciate you having me. Oh, it, it was so much fun, Alex. Thank you so much. Everyone else, that was Alex Bennett at Literary Booze. Thank you all so much for listening to the program. You guys know me. My name's Ro. I'm the Stone Genius. We'll talk to you all later.